You know, evangelism is a combination, especially training, is a combination of inspiration and conviction. Inspiration is great, but there needs to be a level of conviction. In other words, knowing what God's calling us to do. I can tell you something, but it's not the same as God telling you. And one of the reasons we looked at what the Bible says about discipleship is so that we know what God's calling us to. And anytime God calls us to anything, that we know his power is going to be enabling us to do what he's called us to do. That's what makes a difference in me. I can get up all motivationally and tell you all kinds of good stuff, but I don't have the power God does to enable you to do these things. And so um, we're looking at a little bit of what, you know, getting the direction that the Lord would have us to understand as far as his calling on our lives. There's a lot of confusion when it comes to evangelism these days um, in our church especially. And I say that because the Seventh-day Adventist Church is an evangelistic movement. Uh, we were built on evangelism. And, and a, bi- a, bi- a big core of that is a prophetic message that we have. The three angels' messages, that's what we're about. That's the core of who we are. And that's not from us. That's from Jesus himself. That's when he said um, in, in Matthew 28 to go uh, teach all nations. And we tie that into Matthew 24. And he said, this gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the world for witness like our sign said. In fact, if you take your Bible and you go with me to Revelation 14, and you may have done this before, not going to Revelation 14, I'm sure, hoping you've done that before. But in Revelation 14, verse 6, where we begin with the first angel's message, Revelation 14, 6 says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the what? Everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every what? Nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Now, didn't Jesus say in Matthew 24, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in where? All the world as a witness to all the nations. What do we see happening here in Revelation 14? We see the gospel going to all the world, just like Jesus said it would. That's, that's what we're seeing. Revelation 14 is the fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen, the sign he gave in Matthew 24. And then he said, then the end would come in Matthew 24. Well, if you look at verse 14, after the three angels' messages, it says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And here we see the second coming of Christ. My point being this. There are people even within our church today say, we need to just quit, preach the gospel and get away from all this prophecy stuff. You, you can't do that. Jesus gave the, 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 the commission. He talked about the sign in Matthew 24. We see the fulfillment of it in Revelation chapter 14. Now, it may or may not surprise you that the message of Christ himself was a prophetic message. Ellen White makes that point. In fact, you find in the gospel, she's commenting on Mark chapter 1, verse 15, where Jesus, when he began preaching, the first words that Mark records him saying is, the time is fulfilled. Good Seventh-day Adventist, what time was he talking about? What time was fulfilled for him to show up and start preaching? It was a 70-week prophecy that foretold the coming of the Messiah. And when he showed up, he preached that prophecy was being fulfilled and he came right on time. When you go to the message of the apostles, every one of the apostles, Peter on the day of Pentecost and afterwards in the New Testament, what did they do? They pointed back to all the prophecies that pointed to the coming Christ and proved how Christ fulfilled the prophecies of Scripture. 
The message has always been a prophetic message. And uh, there are people finding issue with that today, and so they're, you know, you've got, you've got people stirring up questions and doubts as to whether or not the message we have is the right message. And when you begin to doubt your message, guess what stops happening? You're not sharing a message that you're uncertain about. And so that, that and now this is not just, I'm, t- I'm speaking as Seventh-day Adventist now, but I need to tell you, and it says it right at the top of the handout, Statistically speaking, only how much? 2% of professed Christians in North America, that's not Adventists, that's Christians, share their faith on a regular basis. Only 2%. We just read what the Bible says about disciples. And yet 2%? And I'll tell you a big reason for this. And again, it's come into our church. There are a lot of things that we would do better off not to keep borrowing from other churches. I'm not saying we can't borrow anything, but I'm saying... One of the things that we have borrowed is the spiritual gift inventory. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The spiritual gift test. Now, I don't want to totally condemn the spiritual gift test, just mostly condemn it. Um, And this is what I mean. How many of you have ever taken a spiritual gift test before? What What is the sum of the spiritual gift test? It's asking you what? It's not just your opinion. It's asking you... What you think you're good at and what you what? What you like to do. Where did we get the idea that God would never ask us to do anything we didn't like to do or that our gift only is going to be what I like to do? So right away, the test, we've got a problem because we're filling out this thing that's going to tell us what my gift is, but I'm only saying what I like to do when the very call of discipleship says you're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and do what you don't like to do. And so what happens is people go through the test and they say, yeah, well, I like being friendly to people, hospitality, that's good. And yeah, I, I like uh, helping out with a uh, fellowship meal, that's good. No, I don't like going door to door, I feel uncomfortable doing that. And so how many people do you think probably on average feel comfortable with going to witness to people that they don't know? I already gave you a clue. About 2%. About 2%. I want you to see something here. I'm kind of jumping the gun a little bit. Go to Matthew chapter 10. Now, you know Matthew 10 is where Jesus sends out the disciples to witness. And it actually gets a little scary in there. If you look at Matthew 10, you've, again, probably read this verse before, but maybe not in this light. Matthew 10, verse 28. In fact, if you go back a little bit, let's go to Matthew 10, verse 16. He says, Behold, I send you out as what? Sheep in the midst of wolves. (laughs) I mean, I'm I'm reading this now, and it's dawned on me. I've never told my church members that when I sent them out on an outreach. Like, hey, I ought to try that. Hey, by the way, everybody, today we're going to go knock on doors. I just want you to know I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. You're probably not going to come back today. (laughs) But you did a good work. I mean, this is what Jesus said. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will... Verse 17, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. 
But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should. Boy, underline that, mark that in your Bible. That applies to you just as well. Why not worry about what I should speak? For it will be given to you when? In that hour, what you should speak. Look, the Lord's going to do the same thing for you. There is no amount of anything you know, any skill you have, any knowledge you have that is going to do anything if it's not through the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't be like, well, that person's so much better than me. It, it, that, that doesn't amount to anything. Nope. It amounts to is your willingness to be used by the Spirit of God. Jesus said, don't worry about that. I'm going to give you what to speak in that. How many of you have found yourself in a conversation where the Lord just took over and afterwards you're like, where in the world did that come from? I don't even know what I said. But that for some reason afterwards, they're like, thank you, thank you, praise God. You sent, I know God sent you to me. And you're thinking, what did I say? The Lord will do the same for us. Anyway, so Jesus sends his disciples out. I'm not going to read through the whole passage. Come to verse 28. He says, and do not fear those who what? Kill the body. Kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So now who's Jesus talking to here? His disciples, right? Um, what's he tell them? Don't be afraid. What kind of person do you say don't be afraid to? An afraid one, right? You tell that to afraid people. You don't tell that to people who aren't afraid. Like somebody's like, oh, let's go. You got a team of guys are going to go out and they're going to play football. Like, let's go. We're going to crush them. Okay, before you guys go out, don't be afraid. What? You don't tell that to people who aren't afraid. You tell it to people who are afraid. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because we get this mindset that if something makes me uneasy, something makes me nervous, something makes me scared, it must not be my gift. That was the apostles' gift. That was the disciples' gift. Well, guess what? The Bible says they were afraid too, doesn't it? And so Jesus said, hey, don't be afraid. And, and, and they, I mean, they had pretty, I'm going to tell you right now, in this country, you're not going to get killed when you go out and witness. It's not going to happen. It will one day. There's no maybe about it. I can guarantee you that. I can give you 100% guarantee that you're not going to go out and get, well, you could do something really crazy, I guess, and it depends on, <laughs> but you're, you're normal going out, somebody's in church, somebody's in the grocery store, you ask, you give them a, you're not going to get killed doing that. He wasn't just making stuff up here. He said, hey, don't fear those who kill the body. You may not come back from this, but you'll have eternal life. Okay, it's not that bad here yet. But the point is that the disciples of Christ were nervous just like we get nervous. But we take these gift tests, and then we say, oh, well, I took this gift test, and it tells me that doing that is not my gift. So I want to clue you in on something here today. Um, witnessing. There are four spiritual gifts lists in the Bible, okay? Just four of them. There's one in Ephesians 4, one in Romans, no, two in Romans, one in Romans 12, and two in 1 Corinthians 12. Total of four. Guess what isn't on any one of those lists? Witnessing is not on a spiritual gifts list. It's not there. You'll never find witnessing listed in the Bible as a spiritual gift because I like to say it's standard equipment. Okay, when I bought my car, there were options on the car. You can get a car and you can get the all power features, the sunroof and navigational system and all that, but they all come with steering wheels and tires as far as I understand. There's certain things that are standard and witnessing is standard for the Christian. 
Okay, I want you to I want you to see this in a couple passages. It's outlined here in uh, uh, the handout under number one. It says every Christian is born into the kingdom as a soul winner. Let's look at uh, John, the Gospel of John, chapter four. John four. This is Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, which is a great witnessing passage. I'm going to pick up in verse 10. This is after a little bit of the counter already that I'm going to really resist going into because I like so much of this. But in verse 10, it says, Jesus answered to her and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water... Let me pause here for a minute. When he talks to her about the living water, what's he talking about? Okay, we talk about, some people say the Holy Spirit and what have you, but ultimately when he's offering her living water, what's he offering her? Salvation, right? Eternal life, okay? This is the living water. You can drink of the wells of this world, you're going to thirst again, but this water is going to satisfy you. So he says, now don't miss it, verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become what? In him, a fountain of water springing up. Now think about that. Whoever drinks the water, who, who is it who drinks the water? If the water is the offer to salvation, then who is he talking about, those who drink it? Those who accept salvation, right? Everybody who calls himself a Christian, who says, yeah, I've accepted Christ, you drank the water. Now Jesus says, if you drank the water, what does the water do? It becomes something. What does a fountain do? Spouts out water. What kind of water? Salvation, right? Where does it become that fountain? In the person who drinks the water. Jesus is simply saying here that anybody who receives salvation becomes a fountain to others. There's no, there's no oh, here's the select few that this is your gift, but you guys over here aren't fountains. The teaching Christ is, is getting across here, and you'll see this picked up the same author, John, picks up this theme in Revelation. In fact, let's look at it in Revelation 22. John, the same one who got that illustration from Jesus and wrote it there, shares the same concept in Revelation 22:17. And you'll likely hear this passage again. It's a very important passage, very clear passage. There's no ambiguity here. It's not like, what is he trying to say? It's pretty plain. Jesus says in Revelation 22, or the scripture says here, in Revelation 22, 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come. Who's the spirit speaking of? Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Who's the bride? The church. Now, what does it mean to say, come? When a person says, come, if I say, come, what am I doing? I'm inviting you, right? The Spirit and the Bride, so the Holy Spirit is saying, come. Come where? Well, you're going to see in a minute. In fact, it says in the last part, whoever desires, let him drink of the what? Water of life. So there's an invitation to come drink the water of life. Same water we were just reading about, right? So the Spirit is inviting people to come and drink the water of life. 
the bride, the church, is inviting people to come and drink the water of life, right? Because it became a, it became a fountain in the church. And each individual, the spirit and the bride say, come, and notice the next part, let him who hears what? Let him who hears say, come. You know how I used to read that for the longest time? The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears come. That's how I read it forever. The spirit and the bride say, come. They're inviting, and let him who hears come. That's not what it says. It says, let him who hears say, come. What does that just mean? It means I'm getting the invitation once I receive it, what? I repeat the invitation, right? Isn't that the same thought being communicated in John 4 about the, the fountain of water? Look at the handout and look at the quote. Under letter B, you have Revelation twenty two seventeen. Look at the quote, the inset from Christian service under that. It says, right about the middle, just below the middle of the page. It says, every true disciple is born into the kingdom of God as a what? missionary that just means when you receive well you, it goes on to say it he who drinks of the living water becomes a fountain of life the receiver becomes a giver the grace of christ in the soul is like a spring in the desert welling up to refresh all and making those who are ready to perish eager to drink of the water of life look at for the next quote from great controversy it says the spirit of christ is a missionary spirit Right? That's the sum and substance of his life. The very first impulse of the renewed heart is to bring others also to the Savior. And then next, the one from Desire of Ages, the bottom of the page, says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come. Everyone who hears is to what? Repeat the invitation. Who, whatever one's calling in life. So this isn't just for pastors and Bible workers. Whatever one's calling in, in life his first interest should be to what? Win souls. Win souls for Christ. He may not be able to communicate the instruction. I'm sorry, he may not be able to speak to congregations, which I'll talk about in a minute, but he can work for individuals. To them, he can communicate the instruction received from his Lord. Ministry does not consist alone in preaching. So let me, let me uh, interject here a little bit about preaching. I'm going to come back to that quote. Let's go to the top of the next page, and let's talk about preaching for a minute. I've got a quote on the top of the page from Scripture. Under the heading, all are called to preach. You notice preach is in quotes. Um, scare quotes, we call them. Not trying to scare you, but that's what they call them. I'm not even sure why they call them that. Cameron would tell me if he was in here. I don't see him. And he said to them, go into the world, all the world, sorry, and do what? Preach. preach the gospel to every creature. The Bible says they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. Now, there's a handful of words in the New Testament for preach. One of the main words is the word caruso, but they're all the same. There is no New Testament Greek word that when it says preach or it's translated preach in our English language, there's none of them that exclusively mean getting up and giving a sermon. When we think preach, we think somebody's getting up and giving a sermon. But when the Bible uses the word preach, for example, the word caruso, which is one of those Greek words, it means to verbally communicate. That's all it means. So I could be sitting here with you, sister, and we could be talking together, and I could talk about it, and I'm preaching to you. That's preaching in the biblical sense. 
It's important to know that because you'll see that when the Bible, you know, otherwise we read in the Bible and we read preaching, we think, oh, they were giving a sermon. I can't do that. And that's why Ellen White just said in that quote from Desire of Ages, not everybody's going to get up and speak to the masses of people, but that's not preaching in the biblical sense. Now, sometimes the word applies to that. But in most places in Scripture, in fact, look at the note there under, under letter A. Most people think of preaching as delivering a message before a public audience. However, this is not what the passage is referring to. There are two primary Greek words translated preach in the New Testament. This passage uses the word caruso, which means to proclaim or tell. The other word is euangelizo. That's where we get evangelist and evangelism, etc. from, which simply means to bring or tell glad tidings. In fact, none of the Greek words used for preach in the New Testament refer exclusively or even primarily to public sermons. So let's look at something else in the book of Acts chapter 8. If you've ever been to witnessing training, you've probably looked at Acts chapter 8. But I can tell you as a young man in my mid-20s, when I first learned what I'm about to share with you, I, it just was so revolutionary to me. I had never, I mean, I'd grown up a Christian. I'd gone to church. I just hadn't done study for myself, reading for myself. So I had the concepts that so many people have that, oh, the apostles are the ones who raised up the church. They did all the preaching and, and we just cheered them on. And it was uh, Pastor Louis Torres who had shared this passage the first time that I saw it the way I'm sharing it with you. Stephen, the first martyr, has just been stoned to death. Saul, the persecutor, was there holding his coat. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. I could just make it, I, I, I feel like I can't go past this without making the note that Stephen never saw the fruit of his labor. Sometimes we feel like our labor isn't doing any good. I wonder what Stephen's going to think when he realizes that his witness for Christ turned Saul, the persecutor, into the apostle Paul. And how many people were won to the kingdom that would never have been won. Paul can't take the credit for that. Stephen takes more credit than Paul. But ultimately, the Lord gets the credit. You know that. But you get what I'm saying. So it says, um, they were scattered all through. Let, let me back up again. Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all what? scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except who? The except the apostles. It says, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Now, don't miss verse 4. Verse 4 says, Therefore, those who were what? Went everywhere what? Preaching the word. Who does the Bible say was scattered in verse 1? Everyone except who? Now, I told you, I mean, my understanding was it was the apostles who raised up the church. The apostles were the ones who went preaching. Now I come to this verse, and it tells me everybody except the apostles. Now, this doesn't mean the apostles weren't preaching somewhere. But what this tells us is as the lay people were scattered, they all went preaching, and it wasn't at a pulpit. It's that word. They were sharing their faith. And who was it who shared their faith? What does it say again? And a few of those who were scattered. 
everyone who was scattered. You don't have just a few people who had that special gift. The church, every member is out verbally sharing the truth in some way. Now, what's interesting is where we pick up on this crowd later. And I want you to understand something. Um, you know, you go to the early church, you have the, you, in the book of Acts, you have Pentecost, you have the outpouring. I'm going to save that for a little bit, looking at my time. Let's, go to, let's look at something else. So here we're in Acts 8, we see those scattered, they go everywhere preaching the word, what happens to them? Well, we're going to pick up on them again in Acts chapter 11. We go through the conversion of Saul. We go, Saul escaping Damascus. We go to Cornelius and his household. And then we come to Acts chapter 11, verse 19. The Bible says in verse 19 of Acts 11, Now those who were what? Scattered, scattered after the persecution. persecution that arose over Stephen. So there's no question, this is the group we just read about. Yeah. Right? Stephen was stoned, Paul was there, and then uh, he, you know, the, uh, the, 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 they were scattered, and those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now here they are. Those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, that's the Greek-speaking Jews, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and what? A great number believed and turned to the Lord. We don't have any apostles here yet. This is you. There's no pastors here yet. There's no conference officials here yet. It's you guys. And you're going everywhere and you're preaching on what's happening. Multitudes. The church is growing leaps and bounds. And the Bible says they went as far as Antioch. And many believed and turned to the Lord. And verse 22 says the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they did what? They sent out the first apostle. Right? They sent out the first pastor. They sent out the first conference leader. This is the lay people. The church is growing. There is so much happening because of what the church members are doing that word gets back to Jerusalem. And don't miss this. The leadership of the church sends a representative to aid the lay people in their work. Not to send somebody that the lay people can stand around and ask about how to work. Today, everything is top-down. It's like, well, when the conference gets here, they'll tell us what to do. That's not what we see here. We see the church members. They know what to do. They're sharing Christ. And when the word gets back to Jerusalem, it's like, Barnabas, go check that out and report to us, and we'll give them what they need. And then the church resources, the lay people, the local church, the pastor is supposed to help to give everything the lay people need to do their work, as Cameron was saying this morning. And then the, we elect local church officers that exist to help the members in their work. At least that's how it was. So it says that they go, Paul, or, or, or the, the elders in Jerusalem, they send Barnabas out. It says in verse 23, when he came 
and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Now you've got Barnabas, the apostle, and the people working together. It says, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek who? Okay, so things are still going great. The church is still growing. So he goes to get Saul slash Paul and says, hey, you got to come and check this out. We need you over here. you got to see what the church members are doing. Verse 26, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians, and you got the rest of the story. I mean, why wouldn't you call them Christians after all that? Man, you got to see what these guys are doing. Barnabas comes out. This is incredible. He works together for a year. Go get Saul. They come back, and the church is growing, and all they're doing, everyone, not just Paul and Barnabas, are preaching Christ. No wonder they call them Christians in Antioch. Witnessing is not the spiritual gift for a select few. It's the work that the Lord has called us all to do. One more passage I want to look at. I don't want to lie to you here. Maybe another one. But let's just uh, let's go to First Thessalonians one. Yeah, I do think I'm going to stop here though. First Thessalonians one, fascinating passage. It's going to have a lot more meaning after what we just read. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, of course, Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians, and starting with, we'll just look at, we'll go ahead and look at verse 8. The apostle says to this church, for from you, the what? The word of the Lord Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also what? In every place, your faith toward God has gone out so that we, the apostles, do not need to what? I mean, they're like, look, you guys have done it all. We're here, praise God. We're just here to encourage you and pray with you. You guys are doing the work. You've already given the message. And so when we look at the early church, we see that God's calling on the early church, and the reason it was so powerful in its growth was because the church members were preaching the word. That was how God ordained it to be. And you think about the, I mean, the whole, we'll talk about the structure later this week, but like I said, we've got it upside down. We wait for everything to come from the top. But in the early church, mission drove administration and not the other way around. You think about, you think about Pentecost, okay? How many people were in the upper room? 120. How many people do you have in your local? Anybody have a church of about 100 people? Okay. So you've got an equivalent. So you begin praying, and the Lord pours out the Holy Spirit, and in the course of a day, what? 3,000 join the church. Make this local, right? What's the difference between your 120 and that 120? So you've got 120 in your local church, give or take. You pray and you get 3,000. Incidentally, those numbers count the men, not the women and children. 
okay? But let's just stick it at 3,000. What are you going to do with 3,000 people next Sabbath? Whoa! Where are you going to put them? Where are you going to have, how many Sabbath school teachers are you going to, where are your classrooms going to hold these people? What about the parking lot? <laughs> Suddenly you've got big issues, right? They're good problems to have, right? But now notice, somebody needs to do something administratively in response to what has just happened on the mission front. And uh, that's what I mean when I say mission drove administration. They had to come up with who's going to be deacons, who's going to be elders, who's going to do this and that, because while we got so many people, we can't take care of the apostles, and we can't take care of everybody. we got to make deacons, right? we got to do this and do that. The structure of the church came about because of the mission of the church. But today, we sit around and we wait and see if leadership's going to tell us what to do. It's backwards. It's upside down. And the Lord is turning it around. Not one stone is going to be left upon another. We need to recapture that early missionary spirit. And by God's grace, listen, we are all here today because the Lord Jesus says it's time. And I'm ready to do this thing. Are you ready to have it done with you, in you, through you? Are you ready? Let's pray together. Help us, Lord, indeed. Lord, we thank you so much that you have called us and qualified us and empowered us that we may be witnesses for you. Now, Lord, I pray uh, as we go to lunch, perhaps other seminars this afternoon, as we ponder on what we have learned here this morning, May the Spirit of God strongly convict and hold that conviction close to our hearts, Lord, that there is a great work that has yet to be done, and we have not been expecting as much from you as we should. You want us to ask for more because you want to do so much more. And Lord, we we live in that age, that time of earth's history, where we have the privilege, if faithful, of seeing Jesus come in the clouds of glory. And Lord, not only that we would see him come, but that there are those in our circle of influence who may be ready when he comes because we were willing to say, here I am, Lord, send me. So Lord, we we ask for the empowerment of your Holy Spirit, for his transforming power. You have told us that when he comes upon us, we will be witnesses unto you. We claim that promise and we thank you for hearing and answering in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.